Our scripture reading will be in the book of Acts, 16th chapter, verses 11, 15, and 22 through 34. So setting sail from Troas, we made a direct voyage to Samothrace, and the following day to Neapolis, and from there to Philippi, which is the leading city of the district of Macedonia and a Roman colony. We remained in this city for some days, and on the Sabbath day we went outside the gate to the riverside where we supposed there was a place of prayer, and we sat down and spoke to the women who had come together. One who heard us was a woman named Lydia from the city of Thyatira, a seller of purple goods, uh, who was a worshiper of God, the Lord opened her heart to pay attention to what was said by Paul. After she was baptized and her, her household as well, she urged us saying, if you have judged me to be faithful to the Lord, come to my house and stay. And she prevailed upon us. Now to verse 22. The crowd joined in and attacking them and the magistrate tore the garments off of them and gave orders to beat them with rods. And when they had inflicted many blows upon them, they threw them into the prison, ordering the jailer to keep them safely. Having received this order, he put them into the inner prison and fastened their feet in the stocks. About midnight, Paul and Silas were praying and singing hymns to God, and the prisoners were listening to him to them, and suddenly there was a great earthquake, so that the foundations of the prison were shaken, and immediately all the doors were opened, and everyone's bonds were unfastened. When the jailer awoke and saw that the prison doors were open, he drew his sword and was about to kill himself, supposing that the prisoners had escaped. But Paul cried with a loud voice, do not harm yourself, for we are all here, and the jailer called for lights and rushed in, and trembling with fear, he fell down before Paul and Silas. Then he brought them out and said, Sirs, what must I do to be saved? And they said, Believe in the Lord Jesus, and you will be saved, you and your household. And they spoke the word of the Lord to him, to all who were in his house. And he took them the same hour of the night and washed their wounds. And he was baptized at once, he and all his family. Then he brought them up into his house and set food before them. And he rejoiced along with his entire household that he had believed in God. This is the word of the Lord. Our sermon outline this week, or the title, striving for unity in Christ and his church. Paul commands the Philippians to, for the sake of the gospel and the church, remain steadfast to stand firm as one person in one spirit to agree in the Lord. I used to work for a leader at Texas Instruments who used to ask our team, when you come into the room, do you bring energy into the room or does the energy leave the room? 
I guess we could ask the same question about unity. When I walk into a room, am I one who brings unity? Do I find myself working towards solutions? Or am I a master of pointing out the problems? I don't believe for a moment that anyone wakes up and says, I want to be divisive. I want to bring disunity. It is much more subtle than that. And that's why Paul has to remind the church. And we also need to be reminded to stand firm and be of one mind. Today's scripture reading takes us all the way back to the early church at Philippi recorded in Acts 16. Verse 14 that Pete just read talks about Lydia. And it says that the Lord opened her heart to pay attention to what was said by Paul. There are so many verses just like this in Scripture that show the detailed workings of God and His sovereignty in salvation. But why was Paul even at Philippi? It's because the Holy Spirit had closed the door on their attempt to go to Asia. And their attempt to proceed to Bithynia was also thwarted. Then Paul saw the man in a a vision urging him to Macedonia And verse 10 says, they concluded that this was where God was calling them to preach the gospel. Paul's very being in Philippi is his obedience to seek to follow God's will and accept God's call on when and where to go. And we find him there faithfully sharing the gospel. And God established the church. The church at Philippi is God's church. Just as Christ's Redeemer is God's church. Churches exist by God's will and God's grace. I would submit to you that the Bible contains the most unifying words ever penned by man. Today in our society, we have all kinds of efforts for diversity, equity, inclusion, and yet we seem to have turmoil, anger, and strife at every turn. I wonder if the modern efforts for greater unity are sometimes thwarted because they always seem to start with how we're different. Might I suggest that we start where we are all united? Romans 3 23 reads, For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. All is a very inclusive term. It transcends race, nationality, wealth, social status. All means all. Romans 3, 19 through 20. Whatever the law says, it speaks to those who are under the law so that that every mouth may be stopped and the whole world may be held accountable to God. The reason it's important that we proclaim the gospel in the backdrop of God's law because it's God's law that makes us aware of sin and the mouth is stopped. And what does that mean? What I think that means is so often we want to say, but I, but I, but I. 
We should all be thankful, but God. You see, but I have heritage, or but I did this, or but I do that, or but I means nothing. But we look, but God, being rich in mercy, because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved. Jesus is the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through him. The church of Jesus Christ then is unified twofold. It is made up of people who agree that we are sinners and in need of a Savior. And people who believe and have faith that it is the only the meritorious work of Christ on the cross by which we are saved. And so we're all unified in that we're sinners and Christ is the only way to salvation. True peace only comes when we humble ourselves before the God of all creation. So there's two conversion stories in the Acts passage this week, right? Lydia and the jailer. Paul was also harassed for many days by a fortune-telling demon-possessed girl. Driving out this demon caused her money-focused masters to get really upset. They had Paul and Silas beaten and flogged and thrown into prison. And for the sake of time, we just we picked it up right there. So we find Paul and Silas in chains, singing hymns to God. The prisoners were listening. And God in his sovereignty chose to loosen their chains through an earthquake. And then we heard the story of the jailer. The salvation of both Lydia and the jailer resulted in an immediate impact that their household, which would have probably included servants and, and other family members, were also were able to hear the gospel. These conversions also resulted in hospitable hearts where Lydia hosted them into her home and the jailer cared for their wounds. The conversion of a heart to Christ results in the desire to tell others about it and also a love for the fellow saints. Paul was part of this and no doubt had watched this church grow. He was there at the beginning and this church remained by God's grace even becoming a generous and benevolent church. But founding a church and keeping a church isn't always easy. Matter of fact, maybe I should have reworded that. Founding a church and keeping a church is never easy. Just in this story, we see Paul didn't get his way. Rather, he had to join in where God wanted him to work. And in doing so, he was beaten and jailed for it. God establishes churches and Christ is the cornerstone. Today's text starts with this transitory word, therefore. Last week... We were in verses 10 through 21. And you know, sometimes Paul builds and stacks content and commands and arguments on top of one another. And those uh, 12 or 11 verses we looked at last week had that kind of energy. These verses are the kind of energy that, or they're the kind of verses that bring energy into the room. So let's get a run at this week's text, starting all the way back in 310. Let's kind of re-enter. You see, Paul says that I may know him and the power of his resurrections and may share in his sufferings, becoming like him in his death. Not that I've already obtained this or I'm already perfect, but I press on 
to make it my own because Christ Jesus has made me his own. I do not consider that I have made it my own, but I, one thing I do, forgetting what lies behind and straining forward to what lies ahead, I press on toward the goal for the prize of the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. Only let us hold true to what we have obtained. And then he says, brothers, join in imitating me and keep your eyes on us, on those who walk according to this example. And then he says, for many. It's an important word, many. Because it follows that many walk as enemies of the cross of Christ. Their end is destruction. Their God is their belly and they glory in their shame. But our citizenship is in heaven. Therefore, my brothers, whom I love and long for my joy and crown stand firm thus in the Lord my beloved and I entreat Yodia and I entreat Sintichi to agree in the Lord yes I ask you also true companion help these women who have labored side by side with me in the gospel together with Clement and the rest of my fellow workers whose names are in the book of life Two clear commands to unpack here. Stand firm and agree both in the Lord. So what deep heartfelt emotions here? I mean, this is, when you read this, it's like, my brothers whom I love and long for, my joy, my crown, stand firm thus, my beloved. Paul's affection is dripping off the page. And his love bookends this entire book, this verse. Now, to understand this, I think we have to go all the way back to 127 to get a complete understanding. So if you'd slide all the way back to Philippians 127, we'll read that together. Only let your manner of life be worthy of the gospel of Christ, so that whether I come and see you or am absent, that I may hear uh, that you are standing firm in one spirit with one mind, Striving side by side for the faith of the gospel and not frightened in anything by your opponents. The command to stand firm and this entreaty for unity started all the way back in 127 through 28. It's almost exactly the same phraseology here. And so that starts and then we have this entire section and now we're coming all the way back in 4, 1 through 3 to the same exact command. So what happened in the between? I think it's important to know. 2, 2. Well, first of all, right in that 27 and 28, he's, they're commanded to stand firm even in the face of opposition, making it clear that when we're proclaiming the gospel, we should expect that. And then 2.2 iterates, Paul says, make my joy complete by being in the same mind, same love, being in the same accord and one mind. And then here's the command, do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but be humble, looking for the interest of others. And then he gives... Jesus Christ, his example of humility as the ultimate example of what to follow. So he, he speaks of conceit and selfish ambition, and he puts forth Christ as the true example. Then he gives this charge to not grumble or dispute, but live as lights. And then he puts forth Timothy and Epaphroditus as examples of humility. And then in chapter 3, chapter 3, he distinctly reminds and presents the gospel reminding everyone that no amount of heritage or works of the law 
any of that stuff that Paul had a bunch of, remember? He had all of these qualifications. It was as rubbish. None of that will save. And he brings us all completely focused into the incomparable worth of knowing Jesus Christ as Lord. So, as I mentioned earlier, a converted heart has a new orientation to tell others about it. I was lost, and now I'm found. I was bound, and now I'm free. And it also results in this desire to live for Christ. And that's where we picked it up this past week, right? Whatever the circumstance, Paul wanted to be found standing in Christ. And he says he lived with that way, to know the power of the resurrection, not growing complacent. He is compelled by grace in the fact that Christ had made him his own. Forgetting what was behind, being compelled to press on and strain forward. Living our lives in such a way that we can call attention to ourselves, not distracted with earthly things, knowing that our citizenship is in heaven. And his affection, love, and longing for them was stated before, but now he really describes them as his joy and his crown. Those are eschatological terms. These are specifically future-oriented Paul uses the term my joy, which most likely could have a twofold meaning of present joy, but this is this possessive joy of having a part in their conversion. He sees them and knows they're his joy because he knows that God has opened their heart to the gospel and he has this confidence of their someday appearing with him in the presence of Christ. This word crown is not a crown like royalty. It's a crown like a victor's crown. Think of like the pictures you've seen of the Greek races, you know, like a, a wreath, you know, and, and, or a, vic, you know, a victor's crown. Like you finished the race. You completed the race. You, you competed well. Herein lies the reason Paul wishes them to stand firm. So as to achieve this prize, entering into the eternal presence of Jesus Christ. To stand firm. This is the command. It is not what we stand firm in, but who we stand firm in. It says we are to stand firm in the Lord. Holding forth the gospel of Jesus Christ. Standing firm, not backing up, not backing down, pressing on. Our Lord's perseverance inside of the cross was the very first example of this. As He went to the cross. This example of not backing up, standing firm, going forward has been carried to the earliest founding, founding of the church, even at Antioch, and throughout all of the New Testament as in, and is still in effect for us today. Acts 11.22 The report of this came to the ears of the church in Jerusalem and they sent Barnabas to Antioch. When he came and saw the grace of God, he was glad and he exhorted them to remain faithful to the Lord with steadfast purpose. Acts 14.22, strengthening the souls of the disciples, encouraging them to continue in the faith and saying, through many tribulations, we must enter the kingdom of God. Therefore, my beloved brothers, be steadfast, immovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord, knowing that in the Lord your labor is not in vain. And in 1 Corinthians 16.13, it says, be watchful, stand firm in the faith, act like men, be strong, let all that you do be done in love. I love that verse. It's kind of like a manly verse, right? It says, act like men. Chuck Swindoll paraphrased this. Be alert and think. Stand alone. Hold tight to your convictions. Grow up, which means be adult. 
and get tough. Doctrinal issues are worth fighting for. We see in the Galatians uh, letter, stand firm therefore and do not submit again to a yoke of slavery. Our battles are very real right here, but they're also spiritual battles. In Ephesians, he pulls out the the spiritual battle that we have, right? And in Ephesians 6.10, be strong in the Lord and in the strength of his might. Put on the whole armor that you may be able to stand against the schemes of the devil. And on down in verse 13, that you may be able to withstand in the evil day. And having done all to stand firm, stand therefore. Colossians 2.5. Paul was rejoicing to see your good order and the firmness of your faith in Christ. 2 Thessalonians 2.15. Brothers, stand firm and hold to the traditions that you were taught by us. 1 Peter 5.12. I have written briefly to you, exhorting and declaring that it is the true grace of God. Stand firm in it. Second Peter 3, 16 through 17. Take care that you are not carried away with the error of lawless people and lose your own stability. I mean, this context makes it exceedingly clear, inclusive in Philippians and all the other passages, including James and including Peter. I think we can safely say that the command to stand firm is as essential to the survival of the church as the need to breathe is for the survival of a person. The attacks to the church to destabilize, to deunify, to rob her of her power, to render her less effective, come from multiple fronts. We can't forget that we're in a war. And wars sometimes have to be fought on multiple fronts. In the pursuit of holiness, we must not tolerate sin in the church. The letter to the Corinthians. In doctrine, Galatians. In the face of opposition, various, but even here in Philippi. And in spiritual warfare, Ephesians. So to stand firm in the Lord, we must protect from at least three ways. From within, from without, and from Satan. From within. Personal repentance of sin. We're a body of believers. We all have to go before the face of God and be honest with where we are. That was one of Arch's points last week, being honest with ourselves. Personal repentance of sin. Corporate tolerance of sin is something that can't be allowed. And personal preferences. We must protect in three ways. Personal sin, corporate sin, and personal preferences. From without, the world and its persecution, attacks will come. Ah, you still believe that stuff? No, surely you don't, you know, know, those, those, right? I mean, you can't possibly believe in that old book. The world and its enticements. So when an attack is actually coming at you and you can see the attack and it's a real deal, that's an easier attack to fight sometimes than the enticing attack. The friendship, the enticement 
of the world. Right? Paul warned us in here, right? He said about the many we talked about earlier who were focused on the world. James 4.4, you adulterous people. Do you not know that friendship with the world is enmity with God? Therefore, whoever wishes to be a friend of the world makes himself an enemy of God. And in 1 John 2.15, if anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. There's these temptations to waver on doctrinal truths, liberalism, cultural accommodation, and then the attacks from Satan. We must remember that the battle is not only in the seen, but also the unseen, and we have to tend to the spiritual realm. So, what do we do to keep us standing firm in the who, which is Jesus Christ? Starts with biblically shaped theology and doctrine. Creeds, confessions, catechisms, statements of faith are all things we put together to take the key contents of the Bible, systematize them, and allow us to better remember, better teach, crystallize and condense. You know, I have this little booklet on my desk called Three Forms of Unity. It's actually the title of it, Three Forms of Unity. And it's the Belgic Confession, the Heidelberg Catechism, the Canons of Dort. We've got the Westminster Confession. Some of you are, you know, 1689ers. Some of you are 1853ers. Systems and strategies that are designed to focus us on Christ, right? To help us. But I would warn us, warn us. We have to be careful that we do not value the system more than the Savior. That can happen. Especially when certain truths start to fall together and fits like a puzzle. Ah, wow! And you want to talk about this new system. We need to be talking about the Savior. Who can, the only way that someone can be saved is by belief in the Savior, not a belief in a system. Expositional preaching. We see the Bible as central and as sufficient for all practice. The entire scripture, not just bits and pieces. And the reason expositional is important is so that we're not relying on how creative we are and what we can come up with and whether we've got the coolest topics or the catchiest titles or whatever trying to make this appealing. It is appealing. It is God's word that saves. And so the best thing we can do is stay centrally focused on the proclamation of God's word verse by verse. Biblically shaped, well, sorry, meaningful membership. Membership needs to be composed of people who are saved, set apart, our view, baptized by immersion, publicly and identified, and having a love for the saints. Covenant membership, where we take our commitment and covenant to each other seriously. Biblically shaped methodology. Leadership, as the scripture says, a plurality, a plurality of elders, deacons, 
structure that is formed from the Bible. When I say biblically shaped methodology, what I mean is we use this as our faith and practice to guide us on how we should structure and not corporate ideas, not capitalistic ideas. There's lots of different systems that can produce lots of different things out there in the world. But just because those things can be successful in a man-made economy does not necessarily mean that it is what we should do in God's economy. And we believe to have the most effective impact on the world, to have a reforming and redeeming impact on society, we should follow the biblical practice and what's specified in the Bible. And that should also be discipline and disciple-making. And sometimes when we say church discipline, everybody's like, oh. The very first thing that comes into everyone's mind is some, some sort of old picture of like an old saint or John Calvin or somebody excommunicating someone. That's the last resort. But if we're focused on disciple making, which is actually what Jesus said to do, right? Go into the world and do what? Make disciples. And if we're focused on disciple making, then we're working and we're living, you know, living among each other. And so what happens if we're focused on disciple making, if we see that one of our fellow members is not there regularly or seems to be withdrawing or something's going on, we go after them. You, individually, you don't have to have an elder tell you to do that. You don't have to have an deacon. You don't have, you don't, just go. I haven't seen this person lately. Call, text, go. Where are you? How are you? Get together. And as we're growing, and yes, there is times when someone is caught in sin and refuses to repent. But first we go one-on-one, right? And then if they don't, take a couple of brothers or sisters. And of course, if they don't acknowledge or repent, then we bring it before the body. And yes, in the most travesty cases, repentance doesn't occur. And who holds the keys? The church holds the keys. But it starts with disciple making. If we're doing a great job of disciple making, the whole idea of getting to a late stage of church discipline should be late in the game. Gospel proclamation, the true gospel taken to Judea, Samaria, to the ends of the earth, locally as well as regionally. Our church should be constantly reforming and learning and growing. There's nothing that says a church is perfect. But we should constantly be trying to hold and guide ourselves into Christ. So let's look briefly at this specific disunity that Paul was warning against. It appeared, so he starts with, and let's go back to 4, 1 through 3. If you would, just we'll reset, right? We'll come back here. Oh, one more final point on that. Sorry. There's a book out there called The Trellis and the Vine. It's a good book, but what it talks about is is things like programs, budgets, structure, meetings, things like this, committees, whatever, you know, depending on what your background in church polity is or, you know, structure, are like a trellis. But the life of the body is the vine that grows on the trellis. And far too often, you can see this wonderfully structured trellis in a very unhealthy vine what I hope is that we have a trellis with the minimum number of sticks on it that's holding it together and a beautiful vine full of life in our church full of saints loving each other 
and caring for one another and focusing on the Savior and taking the gospel to the, to the community and God saving people. So, now, this pronunciation of Sintichi. Now, I've got two, two points to make on that. One, I went to my trusty King James long primer and it has the actual pronunciations of proper names in there. So I had Terry help me with the appropriate English uh, terms of long E, little E, this kind of stuff. So I think I got it right. But I was also told one time in another Bible study that when you come across a hard to pronounce name, if you just pronounce it confidently, most everybody else in the congregation will say, huh, I didn't know it was pronounced that way. <laughs> I entreat or urge Euodia, and I urge or entreat Sintichi, emphatically urging them to agree in the Lord. Now, we know they're not from the outside the church, like troublemakers. They're most likely church members and probably leaders or at least influencers of the church, since Paul refers to them as laborers side by side, likely friends whom Paul had a personal knowledge of so as to feel comfortable to make this urge. Their nature of this disagreement is not exactly mentioned, but it's not doctrinal, or I think Paul would have addressed it. He would have addressed the error specifically. So instead of just speculating, you remember earlier when I went back through those verses through 127 and we saw that we had opposition that was, was occurring and, and Paul had said to stand firm in the face of opposition and we, Paul asked to agree you know, and have one mind in the face of humility and to do, not do things out of pride but to you know, focus on humility and be selfless and focus on others. And then we also see his warnings to not took, look at the confidence of the flesh, put no confidence in the flesh, and, you know, and, and to, to, to focus on the unsurpassing greatness of knowing Jesus Christ as Lord. So we don't know exactly, because Paul doesn't name it, but it's probably something about doing the gospel is what the commentators all lined up on. Now, he doesn't take sides, but he appeals to them to agree in the Lord. And then he involves who the ESV calls true companion. I also ask you, true companion, help these women. Now, if you look down at your footnotes in an ESV, loyal, S-Y-Z-Y-G-U-S, Sizigus, loyal Sizigus. So the literal rendering is Sizigus, which means loyal yoke fellow. Now, it's unclear who this is, and there's at least three ways to interpret it. If you look here at this text, it says, you. That is singular. You. Okay, also. I ask you also. That's a singular word. So, some people say that he is talking to the church as an entity. Since this letter would have been read to the church, I urge you to help these women. It could also be interpreted as a proper name. He is this loyal yoke fellow, some whom Paul had tremendous confidence in. And this position assumes that since Paul named Clement and Euodia and Sintichi, why would he leave someone unnamed, like loyal yoke fellow? 
Okay, so they think that's inconsistent and that this is probably a proper name. But nowhere else is this person mentioned in Scripture, and so this is just one, you know, one conclusion. The other is that it is an unnamed individual whom Paul is referring to as yoke fellow. So MacArthur takes the previous view. Gordon Fee takes the view that this term loyal yoke fellow might actually refer to Luke. So if you remember back in Acts, you know one of the we passages in Acts, if you've never read those, if you go back where who, the writer of Acts refers to we left and then we did this. So Paul's missionary journeys, he was on that missionary journey with Paul documenting that. When, if Luke was the author, then we know Luke was included in that. We as the author is saying this. And so they make the case that since he was there through that Philippian time when the church was founded, that it was possibly Luke. We know it wasn't Timothy. We know it wasn't Epaphroditus because they were with Paul. So there's no way to completely reconcile this. It's most least likely that it's the church at large, but there is no way. However, so let's just, okay. Either way, the command, it's a subcommand, right? So one, he commands the ladies to agree in the Lord, and then there's this subcommand to loyal yoke fellow, help these women. Together with Clement, the rest of the fellow workers whose names are in the book of life. So there's another eschatological point, right? The, 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 whose names are in the, the book of life. So help these women. It's kind of a broad ask, wouldn't you say? But yet at the same time, is that not how sometimes ministry is? Sometimes there's not a perfect recipe. Sometimes there's not a checklist, answer this, answer this, answer this. And sometimes we can just tell that there's something, you know, there, there's some disunity here. And, you know, help these women. I think what it really means is, what I think Paul's urging is don't stay back. Don't just see if it works itself out. Don't talk yourself into not getting involved. Ask, how are you? How's this going? What's going on? You know? But it's probably not that this is probably not that substantial since they were leaders in the church. The issue is if it continued to go, then it could grow into something more substantial, which could impact the gospel message. So. I think this is a really applicable section for us this week. And I want to close with an appeal and some application related to this passage for Christ Redeemer Church specifically. I love you, members of Christ Redeemer Church. And I long for your joy in the Lord. It is my first and foremost appeal that if there be anyone here today that is uncertain if your name is written in the book of life, any questions whatsoever about what it means to know Jesus Christ, please see myself, one of the elders, one of the other members. Reason, let's reason together. Let's look at the scriptures. Let's talk about it. Let's understand where you are. As I prepared a lesson on unity, I also felt that it would be dishonest to stare into the face of a text like this and not acknowledge or address that this past year and a half 
has had many hard and challenging times. I would say that our unity was challenged from multiple fronts. Unity doesn't just happen. It is hard to achieve and it is easy to lose. In this past year and a half, there was hurt, uncertainty. There have been wide-ranging emotions and wide-ranging conversations. There were and are some who questioned leadership. There were and are some who really wanted to focus on process and methodology. There were and are some who rolled up their sleeves, doubled down on serving, whether it be set up or tear down or children's or men's and women's security, etc., home groups, our Advent study. In some cases, people have gone from six week rotations down to three week rotations to continue to keep the gospel central in front of our children. And God saw fit to move in some hearts, moving some people felt called to do ministry in another church. I want you to know that the elders have and do faithfully continue and have been praying for each of our body by name. And I know and also know that you have been praying for each other as I hear the conversations among you. And I feel it personally in our home group and among our body, our prayer nights, we are thankful that God, in His kindness, has brought us Arch, Beck, Archie, and Ruthie. But we are exceptionally thankful also for every new member and regular visitor that God, in His kindness, has brought to us. We have maintained an unwavering belief that Christ Redeemer Church was and is worth fighting for. Everyone here throughout this past year has experienced uncertainty, fatigue, tears, probably anger, but we also have had joy and fun and we have been found faithful to pray and we have not forsaken the gathering together, hearing the word preached. We've held children's activities, worshiped weekly with special worship nights at the church, all while praying and seeking that God would provide a new lead pastor. From my personal experience and my own self and hearing and talking with many of you, it was hard. In Psalm 13, David says, How long, O oh Lord, will you forget me forever? How long will you hide your face from me? How long must I take counsel in my soul and have sorrow in my heart all day? How long shall my enemy be exalted over me? Consider and answer me, O oh Lord my God. Light up my eyes, lest I sleep the sleep of death. Lest my enemy say, I have prevailed over him. 
And verse 5 says, But I have trusted in your steadfast love. My heart shall rejoice in your salvation. I will sing to the Lord because he has dealt bountifully with me. In verse 9, We will give thanks to the Lord with my whole heart. I will recount all of your wonderful deeds. I will be glad and exult in you. The Lord sits enthroned forever. He judges the world with righteousness. He judges the peoples with uprightness. The Lord is a stronghold for the oppressed. A stronghold in times of trouble. And those who know your name put their trust in you. For you, O Lord, have not forsaken those who seek you. Psalm 30. Sing praises to the Lord, O you, His saints, and give thanks to His holy name. For his anger is but for a moment, and his favor is for a lifetime. Weeping may tarry for the night, but joy comes with the morning. As we have stayed together, and prayed together, and trusted that God would keep us, here we are. Here we are! Some of you have described it as it feels like home again. Well, what has also been a trying season? Whether we are longtime members... Or whether we are new members, we are in His church. It is God's church. As I said earlier, churches exist by God's grace and God's will. And we are here right now together for such a time as this. And it is my great hope. And I hope it is your hope. That our unity may be grounded as it was in the Colossian church. When Paul said to them, put on then as God's chosen ones, holy and beloved, compassionate hearts, kindness, humility, meekness, and patience, bearing with one another. And if one has a complaint against another, forgiving each other as the Lord has forgiven you, so you also must forgive. And above all these, put on love, which binds everything together in perfect harmony, and let the peace of Christ rule in your hearts, to which indeed you were called in one body. And be thankful. Let the word of Christ dwell in you richly, teaching and admonishing one another in all wisdom, singing psalms and hymns and spiritual songs with thankfulness in your hearts to God. And whatever you do, whatever we do, let us do it. In the name of the Lord Jesus Christ, giving thanks to God the Father through Him. It is my hope that this message from Paul to the Philippians resonates loudly for us today. That we are united in the incomparable and unsurpassing joy of knowing Jesus Christ as Lord. And that our unity is sought in Him. That we are desiring to hold forth the true gospel with all confidence. Knowing the power of Christ's resurrection working within us. Forgetting what lies behind and straining for what lies ahead. Pressing on toward the goal. The upward call of knowing Jesus Christ. And as we turn our eyes more and more upon the face of Christ, it is my also hope that the things of this earth can grow strangely more dim in the light 
of his glory and his grace. And that we will all be found eagerly ready to enter his presence, whether he takes us from the earth or he comes back to get us. Whatever each of our giftings may be, it is my joy to labor alongside you. My true joy to work together. Let us be loyal yoke fellows together. And as the opposition comes, it is my great hope that we are found in one mind and in one spirit, standing firm, focused on Jesus Christ. Let's pray. Gracious God, we thank you for your word. We thank you for this, the church, our church. We thank you that you have saved us and preserved us together as a body. We are thankful that we hear today your word calling us to stay unified in you. And I pray that we would take your message to the community of McKinney with full confidence, standing in you, fully in agreement in all we do. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.